0: The words which I'd like to draw your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of Mark, and we will begin reading in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land and he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who've heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is not brought to be put on a lampstand. I realize I just read one verse too many. But that's good too. With that, let's pray together. Lord, your word has not come to us to be hidden, but to be proclaimed that the light of your truth might be shown in in all of our hearts, that we might see so clearly the folly of sin and the freedom and the glory and the joy that comes from simple obedience to what you've commanded. And though you are a holy God, you are not a cruel God, but you are good, and you are kind, and you are loving. And so I pray that in your kindness, you might work in power, that we would see with clear spiritual sight that the sin which so easily entangles might be stripped away, and that with the power of your Spirit, we might be set free to pursue you in full obedience. And so that we might see you produce in us fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever wondered... What's really going on in the world? What's going on in North Korea? What's really going on in Pakistan and India? What's what's really going on in Venezuela right now? Or what's really going on in the church? The church across the world, or the church in America, or even Grace and Truth Bible Church? What's really going on? Or what's, what's going on in the hearts of the people you're in relationship with? Your family members, maybe your kids, or your parents, or people at work. What's going on in their heart? What's really going on in your heart? Well, the answer to all of these questions is the same. War. War. war In fact ever since the garden of eden there has been an all out war over the souls of men and i don't say that to sound uh just to, to bring some sort of emphasis this is true and so although our attention is often directed to politics or business or family errands that we need need to take care of what's really going on in the war in the world is a war. And that is exactly why the Apostle Paul said, put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul wasn't joking. Paul wasn't just trying to to create a scene to stir up his hearers. He was being blood earnest. We are in a very real spiritual war. That's what's going on in the world. That's why Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. This is not some physical battle. Though what we see is physical, it is material. That's not what's really going on. Behind all of what we see, there is a very real spiritual battle with very real casualties. And the key critical and constant battlefield is the hearts of men. And the passage before us serves to explain questions that come out of this war that we're in. Questions like, why is it that so many people who hear the truth walk away from the truth? Why is it that when we tell people the greatest news in the entire world, that they could be freed from their slavery to sin, why is it that so many people just walk away from it? And go back to their lives of misery thinking the things that they've already done and indulged in will actually make them happy. When eternal life and eternal joy that can never be stripped away from them, they leave behind in the dust. How do we explain that? Why do so many people at one time seem to love Christ with all of their heart? And then when things get hard, or when new wonderful opportunities come into their life, they walk away from Christ. Why does it so often seem that we lose more spiritual battles than we win? Even though the Bible says, very clearly, that God is the one who is at work in us mightily. If God is at work in us mightily to accomplish His purpose, why do we see so many spiritual battles getting lost? Well, these are all questions that are answered in the text before us. In the familiar parable of the sower. But before we examine the parable... Let us recall briefly what we've already covered so far in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, up to this point, and up in, I think, through chapter 8, covers Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And while Jesus is ministering throughout Galilee, He's particularly ministering in two ways. A ministry of preaching, or a ministry of proclamation, and a ministry of healing. So as He goes about healing people, He's putting particular emphasis on his words. Listen to what I'm saying. And Mark in particular emphasizes how people respond to Jesus' teaching. We see that some people, as they hear Christ speak, they're willing to leave everything and follow him. Others, particularly the crowds, they're drawn to him because he has the power to heal. The religious leaders appear to be in constant conflict with him, particularly over their religious traditions. Jesus doesn't do what they think he should do, and so they take issue with him. And we even see in chapter 3, the very end of chapter 3, that he was in conflict with his family. His own family thought that he had lost his mind. Which prompts the statement in verse 35 of chapter 3, When Jesus says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And that that statement actually ties into what we will look at today in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea. Verse 1 really introduces us to the setting where Jesus presents his parable. We see that Jesus is is teaching in the very common setting of the seashore. And in fact, here the crowd was so large that Jesus was compelled to actually get into the boat to separate himself from the crowd. And scholars believe this was probably the largest crowd that had ever assembled in all of Jesus' ministry to hear him teach. And this is what he teaches on the parable of the sower. Mark then tells that he's teaching particularly in parables. Look at verse 2. He was teaching them many things in parables. The word parable is a, is a compound of two Greek words. Para, which means by, and bala, which means to throw or cast. And so it, it means to um, something that is placed alongside something else in order to clarify meaning. So often these were illustrations to clarify truth of what Jesus is teaching. But we see actually in verses 11 and 12 that this parable and the parables that follow are actually primarily used to have the opposite effect. Notice verse 11. And he was saying to them, "To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive." And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So actually, the purpose of Jesus' parables here is actually to conceal truth. Particularly to conceal truth from those who are unresponsive to his teachings. Many of these, the people in this crowd have come and they've heard the same truths again and again and again. As Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, they have remained Unchanged, unresponsive to his truth. While at the same time, as he teaches in these parables, it will it will hinder people from grasping his true meaning. But at the same time, it will also secondarily instruct the disciples who do want to know the truth. So it serves to do both things. It hides meaning from the outsiders, as he describes them, and clarifies meaning for his disciples. So again, Jesus' choice to begin teaching in parables is actually an act of judgment. And he chooses teaching parables because the people aren't listening to him. In fact, look at verse 3. That's why he begins his teaching saying, listen to this. Listen. This is a solemn declaration. Jesus wants them to listen. And to listen intently. In fact, their eternal destinies will be determined based upon their response to what he's saying right here. So he's not playing games. He's not just having story time. Trying to entertain. Jesus is fully aware, more than any of us, more than any man who's ever lived, of the reality of the spiritual battle that's taking place. And so he says, listen. And listen intently. Because if you don't grasp what I'm telling you right now, your eternity may be in hell. He's not playing games. And yet, as intensely as he says that in verse 3, look also at verse 13. Even After teaching, his disciples are confused. Which is why they say to him, which he says to them actually, Do you understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? See, their failure to understand actually demonstrates all the more they really need to pay attention. Even his disciples have to listen intently. And since they missed it the first time, they really need to focus the second time. When he gives his explanation. And so he then interprets the parable to them by first explaining in verse 14 the sower sows the word. The sower is referring to the one who sows the word. The seed is the word. The sower goes out and proclaims the word, shares truth with other people. So this, the sower is referring to Jesus. But by implication, not just Jesus, but anybody who would go out and proclaim what the Bible teaches. Either like preaching like I'm doing right now or even in personal conversation, sharing truth with others. From the word of God. And so as you and I share the message of the Bible, we too are sowing seed. And then Jesus goes on to explain the soils which the seed lands on really represent four different responses to the Word of God. You have hard ground, and shallow ground, dangerous ground, and fruitful ground. Let's look first at his explanation of the soil, of the seed that falls on. The hard ground. That's in verse 15 he gives the explanation. He says these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that has been sown in them. And so this first soil represents those who are impervious to the truth. They hear the word. They understand the word. They get it. But they still reject it. It doesn't penetrate the heart. It goes in one ear and it goes right out the other. And interestingly, notice, Jesus actually blames this on Satan. On the work of Satan. Look at verse 15. Satan apparently can destroy the work of the word. How? How does Satan do this? Well first of all 1 John 5:19 says we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one So the world is in the power of Satan Moreover, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, in, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glorious of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan actually has the ability to blind unbelievers. Well, how does he do this? This is also actually rather clear. He does it through lies, through deception, and through sowing doubt about the word of God. He leads people astray by leading them astray in their thinking. We read earlier in John 8, 44, when Jesus said, You're of the, your father, the devil, and it's your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of all liars. Satan lies. I mean, just think of the garden again. Did God really say? Causing doubt. And when a person rejects the word of God, it's because they're under the influence of Satan. When a person hears a truth and then just chooses to reject it for whatever reason, because there could be a multitude of reasons they reject the truth. When that happens, it's because they've bought into a lie. They think, well, what's God, what God's Word says isn't really what's true. or, I know what God's Word says, but obeying what it says isn't really what's best for me. I know what's best. I, know, I really know what's best, getting what I want. Just buying into a lie. Well, how should we minister to those who reject the clear teaching of Scripture? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil." having been held captive by him to do his will. So how do we respond to those who reject the clear teaching of the word of God? We continue to teach. We continue to explain. This is what the word says. And we're patient and we plead in prayer because we recognize we can't, cause them in our ability to change their thinking. There's a spiritual battle taking place that must be fought with spiritual means, namely the word and prayer. In the meantime, we're patient, knowing that the Lord must work. We speak the truth and we pray our hearts out. And then we wait. The next two soils represent what we could call um, question mark Christians. Because we really don't know, in the case of these soils, how they're going to end up. Because initially they, they, they both respond well to the word of God, but we find out that they eventually walk away. So it's hard to tell if they're genuine believers or not. And the first of these is the shallow soil described in verse 16. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. Who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Isn't that interesting? Because immediately they receive it with joy. They love what they hear. They agree with the truth. They like what it says. It sounds good to them. It gives them hope. It gives them confidence in the future. But notice that it's not Satan this time that rips the word away from these people. Instead, it's trials. Namely, affliction or persecution. They fall away from Christ because of trials. And we see that they don't endure because the word never took root. It fell on shallow ground. They they liked what they initially heard, but the word never had a transforming effect in their heart. It was just an intellectual belief. Or it was just a they liked the idea. It was faith without being born again. There was no transformation of the soul it was belief that doesn't really believe so again they love the message of the word the gospel sounds very appealing to them but there was no change there was no miraculous transformation in their heart they still loved the things they always loved there's no change it was just a shallow reception of the word And the hard thing about this sort of soil, this sort of heart, is that it's not going to be obvious until testing. Evidence of faith is seen in how we respond to the word when we're tempted. That's what shows what we really believe. And and, and this is is actually why Christians rejoice in trials. It's not because they're stupid. It's not because we're masochists and we delight in pain and grief and sorrow. That's not it at all. The reason Christians rejoice in trials is because trials show we're real. That we're not like shallow soil. We really are believers. We really treasure Christ more than anything else. We can say with Martin Luther, take goods and kindred let him go take our own life but i will remain with christ that is not something that mere intellectual belief accomplishes brothers and sisters when somebody comes to that point a miracle has taken place and this is why peter says in first peter 1 6 or 7 in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They rejoice because the trial proves the faith is real. It's not just my parents' faith. It's not just my hero's faith. It is faith that has been brought about by the work of the Spirit of God himself. A miracle has taken place in my heart. Romans eight seventeen. If we're children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. We will suffer. And we can rejoice in our suffering. Not because we like the suffering, but because the suffering proves we're real. That's why you rejoice. It's because of what suffering shows, not the suffering itself. In the 3rd century A.D., during the reign of Emperor Valerian, there was a Christian named Nicomachus And he was brought before a Roman ruler and he was ordered to sacrifice to the pagan gods. And Nicomachus took a stand and he said, how could I pay respect to devils that is only due to the Almighty? And he was immediately placed upon the rack. And after enduring the torments for Actually, rather brief period of time, he recanted his faith in Christ. And as soon as he was freed from the rack, he fell to the ground and went into convulsions and great agony and immediately died. And seeing what seemed to her like a terrible judgment, a 16-year-old girl named Denisa, who was among the others, exclaimed this. Oh unhappy wretch, why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? She saw what took place. He wanted to be done with the pain, and he he was willing to, to, to get back his comfort even at the expense of eternity. And when the ruler heard this, he called her to himself, and she herself confessed that she was indeed a Christian. And she was then beheaded. And also during that time, there was two beautiful and well-educated daughters of a prominent man in Rome by the name of Rufina and Secunda. And they were actually engaged to two young men who were also fairly wealthy. And all four were professed Christians. And under Valerian, when the persecution arose, the young men realized that they were now in danger of losing their wealth. And so they went to the the two young women, Rufina and Secunda, and encouraged them to renounce their faith. But when they would not, those two gentlemen informed on them. And the girls were then arrested and beheaded. What a contrast. The trial proved what was really there in all four. Two who had genuine faith, a miracle had taken place. Two others where Christianity was just a, a nice idea, a way to make their life better. And this brings us to the third kind of ground the dangerous soil. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. Verse 18. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. We see the problem with this soil is that it's full of thorns which choke the seed. In fact, the word word choke actually means to strangle or to throttle something. It's a strong word. The seed germinates, but it, but it fails to make much progress because life is choked out of it. And Jesus lists three things that threaten the life of the seed. First of all, there's the worries of the world. So This would, this would be the concerns about what other people think. Physical health. Success. Popularity. Safety, security for one's family, children's future, the worries of the world. He also mentions the deceitfulness of riches. This would be the, the promise of a better life. Hope that you might gain more respect or success. Admiration or love. If you add riches, you could get these things. And notice too, the deceitfulness of riches. It's a lie. It sure seems like if we had wealth, we could get all those things that we want. It's a lie. The deceitfulness of riches. Also the desire for other things. This would be boats, cars, furniture, phones, stuff. All these things. And notice they're not bad things. But all these things choke the word and keep it from being unfruitful. So again, this this describes a person who, like the previous, initially embraces the word, likes what they hear, but who eventually turns away from Christ because they can't break away from the promise of a better life now. They don't want Jesus if life doesn't get better if this means life is going to get hard, if they have to endure suffering, if they have to endure poverty, if they have to if they have to be disrespected, if they have to face loss, I don't want Jesus. If Jesus isn't going to make me better, me greater, me more wonderful, I'm leaving him behind. Well, this is the church, the condition of the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. Actually, why don't you? go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 and note the words of Christ to this church. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Actually, I'll begin in verse 15. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich and I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you. I mean, very similar to what he's saying, here, listen to me, listen, I advise you. To buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments that you may clothe yourself. And that shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I saw to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So Jesus' words to those who are dwelling on dangerous ground is listen and repent. You're in grave danger. You're in grave danger. And now to the people who are of these last two categories that we just talked about, the hope that's given is they can still respond and generate repentance. The story's not done. They can still become good soil, fruitful soil. So there is still hope for the backslider. You will find people who walk away from Christ, but, but don't lose hope. Because there is still hope. But they first need to recognize they must repent. They must acknowledge that what they're doing is foolish and wrong and sinful and turn from it. Because you'll see it's only the fourth soil that enjoys assurance of eternal life. The other soils are question mark, Christians. We don't know. It's only the fourth soil that has assurance. And so as we look at this last soil, each of us should be asking ourselves, does this describe me? Does this describe my heart? Or am I more like the other three? Verse 20. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. You'll notice that the one distinguishing feature of this four soils seen in the verb accepts. It means To believe something and then respond accordingly. So what they believe changes the way that they think and the way that they live. It's not just intellectual. There is a life transformation. They live differently. Their will is changed. They no longer do what they want to do. They do what the word tells them to do. There's a change that takes place. They accept the word It's belief that results in action. This describes the person who accepts the authority of God's word and therefore submits to it. They realize this is not the word of man. This is the word of God. And they submit to it. They realize that their problem is not just that things haven't worked out in life. Their problem is not just that life is hard. But they realize their problem is that they are rebels to God's will. They recognize that their greatest need is to have their heart changed, to turn away from their own inclinations and their selfish pride and to submit wholeheartedly to what God's Word says. They realize they're the problem. It's not the Word, it's them. It's their hearts that keep them from submitting to the Word of God. And this was the kind of response that Paul describes that the Thessalonians had to the Word. I love the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4-5. through Hear how they responded to the Word of God. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. I mean, that's that's some strong words. We know He's chosen you. We know you're elect. We know you're believers. We know you're going to heaven without a doubt. How can Paul say that? Is it because they got a big E, elect, written on their forehead? No. How can Paul say that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Because they accepted it not as the word of men, but the word of God, what it truly is. Full conviction. It's truth. Paul is convinced they're real, they're believers, because they are convinced this is what's true. It's like what Jesus said. Listen to me. If you listen, if you you understand what I'm saying, you will receive the Word of God, you will accept the Word of God, and you will be changed. But you must accept it. And notice in verse 20, that because there's an acceptance of the truth, the seed then produces a significant harvest. Thirty Sixty and a hundredfold. Now just for clarification, an eightfold harvest would have been phenomenal. Jaw dropping. It's the kind of thing that you would show off at, at the county fair. Unbelievable. Eightfold harvest. But Jesus says, this seed produces thirty, sixty, a hundredfold. What's his point? There is no explanation for this harvest. A miracle has taken place. This person has been born again. They no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. And the fruitfulness that comes out of their life is clearly of Christ. And notice it's not just a little fruit that's born, but a miraculous amount. You don't have a 30 fold harvest by mere chance. When the word of God takes root in a person's heart, they're born again. They will bear fruit. Turn to John 15. Well-known passage. Just a few books earlier. Or sorry, afterwards. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it might bear more fruit. It will produce fruit. And it will get pruned. And it will produce more fruit. And it will get pruned and produce produce more fruit. Thirty, sixty, a hundredfold. What does this fruit look like? Well, we're told in the Bible internally, it's the fruit of the Spirit. That person is no longer characterized by selfishness, greed, lust, pride, but love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self control. So it has an internal work but also external and we could this is particularly i think what's being referred to in in this in the in the parable sower is external fruit people are being saved and experiencing spiritual growth on account of their ministry so again it's not that just that this person goes and does ministry but there's a fruitful ministry lives are changed right there's a lot of people who go to church and they They're ushers, or they're on the music team, or they might even be preachers, but there is no spiritual fruit being produced. Just a show. Just a man up there talking. No power. So what this shows us is that genuine faith is something that's proven over time proven over time it's not how one begins the race it's how one ends it but you can tell in the middle of the race when the trials come and they endure or you can tell when a person receives the word with full conviction that they submit to all of it that person's faith is real that person's faith is real so how can we have assurance in the meantime Again, we can find assurance in how we respond to the trials and temptations of life. Because what gives assurance really is how we respond to the Word of God. A believer will always respond, at least eventually, they will always respond with repentance. If they see that their life is being lived in disobedience to the word of God, a believer will repent. Because a believer cares more about obedience than anything else. They care more about honoring God than just doing what they want or what they feel like. An unbeliever simply does what they want. And, and people will come up with a stream of excuses. We, we come up with streams of excuses for why we won't obey. Pride. Maybe you've heard this. Who do you think you are to say that to me? Who do you think you are to tell me to repent? Aren't you a sinner too? Because you're a sinner, I don't have to obey. You see the logic? Or avoidance. Well, that's just your interpretation. So it may, it may, what the Word is saying may be actually rather obvious and clear. But that's just your interpretation. You think, how else would you interpret that? Or mystical folly. Well, God is speaking to my heart. I and mean, I've heard people tell me things like, God's telling me to divorce my husband. Well, God made it very objectively clear that that is sin. But it's amazing. People will justify clear, objective sin by saying, well, God's speaking to my heart. Who do you think's really speaking to that person's heart? I know I get, I get them kind of fired up because I care. That is Satan. That's not the Spirit. And I'm not angry at somebody who gets deceived that way. I want them to realize that is deadly dangerous. This isn't a game. It's not about just Getting what you want. Your eternal destiny is on the line. Don't play games with the truth. Or maybe you hear self-pity. Well, I would obey God if He were just more kind to me. Or more generous to me. If He would just give me what I want. If my life weren't so hard, oh, then I'd obey. You see the problem there? God's not really a good God. God's Failure is what's keeping me back from obedience. Where do you think that's coming from? That's Satan. That's Satan. Or prudence, even. It would be unwise for me to take such risks. What about my future? What about my children's future? Brothers and sisters, obeying God is hard. Frankly, it's impossible. It's why a miracle must take place. And so it's okay to struggle. It's okay. It's okay to say, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I have the strength. It's okay to say, I know what the Bible is telling me to do, but it's hard. Brothers and sisters, that's okay. That's honest. That's real. It's hard for me, too. Most of the things I have to do as a pastor are very difficult, anguishing. But God gives grace. It is hard. But it's not okay to say, I know what the Bible's telling me to do, but I won't do it. That is not the talk of a believer. Second Corinthians 5.15 And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, brothers and sisters, we will all be tempted and tried. But how we respond to the Word of God proves the effect that it's really had in our life. How we respond. And the fruit will be obvious. We will clearly see through the lies of Satan. We will be willing to undergo suffering. And even if offered the whole world. We would consider that a treasure far too small. And note, the parable ends with this exhortation. He who has ears, let him hear. That is, let him understand and let him receive what's being said. Again, this tells us that as long as people live, there is always hope. There's always hope that they might repent. And so with that. Let us go out into the world. Let us continue to sow. Continue to sow the word and continue to fight the battle. And let us, let us fight on the hard ground and fight on the shallow ground. Let us fight on the dangerous ground and keep on fighting until we see the word produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. And let us never surrender. Let us neither flag nor fail. God, give us grace. This mission is too hard in our own strength. We need you to do a miracle. We need you to change hearts. We need you to bring... Beautiful, sweet conviction and repentance. We need you to till the ground that hearts might be fertile and that seed might be fruitful. As Luther said on his deathbed, we are beggars. This is true. Give us grace, God. And we ask that knowing that all the riches that are stored in heavenly places, all the riches of grace are all ours through Jesus Christ. Work in power. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.